from The Solo Project. This is Here Comes Everybody, a podcast about the new world of work and the community of practitioners and thought leaders animated by the opportunity to design a life around the pursuit of interesting work. I don't think it's fair for a company to say, go work from home and not give you options or a stipend or the right furniture or the right resources. Liz Elam is the founder of the world's largest network of co-working owners and operators in the world. The Global Co-Working Unconference Conference, GCUC, affectionately known as JUICY, has produced more than 30 co-working conferences around the world, from New York to Beijing and London to Sydney. Elam has been a co-working owner herself, having founded Link Co-working in Austin, Texas, back in 2010. At the time, Link was one of just four of these spaces in the city. Need proof of the massive growth of co-working? Today, there are over 70 of these spaces in Austin alone. We'll talk with Elam about what savvy soloists should look for in a co-working space, whether working from home is overrated, and how big companies are taking advantage of employees who do. And, of course, she'll answer the burning question, what will the future of co-working look like on Mars? Here at The Solo Project, we hear lots of talk about what people call crossing the bridge. And by the bridge, they mean the bridge from the world of a traditional job and traditional work Mm -hmm. to one of independence. And for some people, that road is um, is subtle and it's long. And for other people, there's an epiphany. Mm -hmm. And you're in the latter group, as I understand it. You... (laughs) Not only had an epiphany, but you had an epiphany in a Starbucks. Yep. Could you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. So this was kind of right when Starbucks um, was just really taking hold. And, you know, there were Starbucks and Barnes and Noble. And I was working for Dell at the time. And I was about to close a big deal. And it was the meeting before the meeting where an executive had flown in from Austin. I was in Atlanta. And I was up in Alpharetta, Georgia, in a Barnes and Noble to have the meeting before the meeting where you inform the executive about who the players are, what we're selling, and kind of what the money might look like. And so I got to the Starbucks early and I bought my $5 burnt cup of coffee. And I sat down in a rock hard chair and I looked for some outlets, which there weren't any. And then I looked around and noticed that not only was my competitor sitting within hearing range, so was my customer. So when this executive came charging in the door, I um, got him a $5 cup of over-roasted coffee and sat him down and said, hey, yeah, so Terry, I don't want to discuss any names, any products, or any pricing. And right on cue, Susie um, had a level five meltdown because her soccer mom wouldn't buy her the $12 butterfly frosted cookie. And Terry looks at me and says, Liz, how the F are we supposed to have a conversation? And I was like, wow, there's got to be a better way. And we ended up having that conversation in my car because that was a better place to meet than the Starbucks. And that started my journey of there has to be a better place for people to go work because I've worked remote for a while. And so that kind of got me percolating on an idea. There had to be a better way than Starbucks and there had to be a better way than meeting in your car. Right, right. Both not ideal. (laughs) So when you said it got you percolating on an idea, what was that very early idea before it became fully formed? It It was just that there had to be a place 
that was set up for salespeople specifically. I was very focused on salespeople because that's what I was. I was like, there has to be a place we can go touch down, get internet, not have all these distractions, maybe get some privacy and get some things done. And at the time, I'd also, I went to a business center in Atlanta on Peachtree Street downtown that felt very archaic. And I was like, like this, but so much better. And then I went to a W Hotel in New York and I was like, like this, less booze. And, you know, eventually came up with the idea of a co-working space. Was that even a phrase at the time? It wasn't. It wasn't. It was years later that the term kind of came to be. I'm going to seriously date myself here, which I try hard not to do. But I started thinking about co-working in 1999. I opened my co-working space in 2010. Wow. So that was an 11-year percolation. Yeah, it was. It seems like it was really fast. But just like, you know, the bands that are in overnight cessation were like, I was playing in the dive bar for 20 years. You know, I was choosing to stay in corporate America because I really liked the paycheck. It's interesting because going all the way back to the, I don't know, the 1980s, there were companies that offered corporate suites. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they were very antiseptic. It, they mm-hmm. bore no resemblance to co-working as we know it today. So you launched in 2010. Mm-hmm. What'd you launch? So it was called Link Coworking, and it was um, one of the first co-working brands in Austin, Texas. At that time, there were hardly any co-working spaces in the world. There was probably, I want to say, maybe 50. And um, so I opened- 50 where? Globally? Globally, yeah. Boy, it's amazing, isn't it, how that industry has grown and matured in such a short period of time. Full hockey stick. So go back. It's 2010. You're launching. Tell us what your original conception was and what surprised you most. My original conception, it was a pretty small space. It was 3,000 square feet. I did sign a 15-year lease because I knew I was at the bottom of the market when I signed in 2010. 15 years. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yep. Signed up for a 15-year lease because I was like, well... This thing is, you know, this is a great rate and I got to lock it in. So that's the definition of an optimist. Right, exactly. And I opened a co-working space in a retail center, which they weren't usually in, but the retail center had some things I loved. It had outdoor space that my people could spill into and be in nature, which I found super important. It had plenty of parking, super important. You could walk to other retail and restaurants, fantastic. And we were less than a mile off of a main major thoroughfare, and we had great access to the main artery of I-35. That was huge. And I wanted to be at a crossroads in the city, and the space worked out really well for me. But I did spend the first 18 months educating Austin on co-working because it was a new term. People didn't know it. They didn't understand it. And what I spent all day doing was explaining what co-working was. What was your target market when you first started? When I, you talked about salespeople. It, that's what I thought. I was like, I'm going to get all these salespeople and they're all going to come here because they work remote and they need a place to get stuff done. And that wasn't who I got at all. I got a lot of freelancers. I got a lot of folks that were working independently. I got folks that were doing gig work, lots of lawyers. At one point I had, I think, 12 or 15 IP attorneys. It was so interesting. Were these attorneys members of a big firm or were they working on their own? Working on their own. So whether you realized it or not, when you worked into Link back in 2010, you were seeing a cross-section of the solo nation, this incredibly big, rapidly growing dynamic population Mm -hmm. of people working independently. Well, and what's so great is, you know, after the economy crashed in 2008, 
you know, lots of people hadn't like they lost their jobs. And what happens when a ton of people lose their job is they decide to go do something because they have no other choice. And usually what happens is when the economy kicks back, those people go back to the security of the job. But this time, people didn't go back. They stayed out. That's absolutely true. Why do you think that is, though? I think that's one of the most unexplored issues that come out of the 2008 meltdown. I would say it's because there were finally systems and support for them. Things like co-working, things like, you know, there was insurance that was available to folks, or there were health care plans, or they had a partner who was in a business or was working for a corporation so they could get benefits that way. So I think it's because that industry started being supported. And we've just recently started seeing it be supported by things like government. Something that's really interesting, it's a footnote to what you're saying, is that for the first time, there's research now that shows that people who have lost their jobs and have become involuntary indies Mm -hmm. or involuntary entrepreneurs actually start more ambitious businesses Mm. and succeed more. Um, Very, very interesting piece of research that really hasn't been publicized yet. In the past, what we would do is we would look at those people and think, oh, those poor people, they're going to have to hang out a shingle for a while. But as soon as there's a job available, they'll hop right back in. Yeah. Well, it turns out not so fast. Well, I miss the security and the paycheck and the benefits, but I'm ruined. I couldn't go back and work for somebody else at this point. (laughs) You're ruined. I'm ruined. (laughs) Welcome to the world of the ruined. We'll be right back. So I'm curious, what did you learn about this population of people that you saw every day when you walked into your Mm -hmm. co-working space? What did you learn about them that you didn't know before? You know what? I I think that, you know, the thing that sets co-working apart is a community. And what I learned was the importance of community. And I learned that community can be as simple as um, helping people meet other people and learning about other folks' families and about their challenges and celebrating their wins and having sorrow over their losses, but also just using the community to lift and support people was the coolest thing I learned. Well, speaking of this, you're clearly somebody who enjoys, and I would even argue, although I don't know you that well yet, uh, thrives on that sense of community. Absolutely. That that sense of being with like-minded people. How did you personally deal with the sense of isolation that necessarily comes with starting something on your own? Um, You know, it's interesting. For a long time, I dealt with it. Like, let's go deep now. (laughs) I dealt with it um, (laughs) by drinking. And And I drank myself into a bad place. And right before I started my company, I got sober. And I also, part of getting sober for me was being in the community of AA. We call it the fellowship, but it's a community. And if it weren't for that, um, I'm not sure Link would have ever gotten open and Juicy would have ever come to be. And 
you know, for me, it solved so many things for me. It solved my loneliness. It solved my thinking I was different from everybody else that I didn't fit in and gave me a fellowship that I needed and desired. Now, I will tell you as part of my journey, many years later, I had two health crises, I think induced by the stress of being an entrepreneur. So Crohn's was activated in my body. I think Crohn's was just sitting in my body and got activated. And then a couple of years later, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm fine, totally fine. Crohn's is managed, cancer's gone. But all people kept telling me is, you've got to reduce your stress, Liz. You've got to reduce your stress. And my response was, how on earth do you do that? How do you stop stressing out? What Somebody give me the answer. And nobody had the answer. I had to come to it. And the answer was, you got one body, you got to take care of it. Nature, very important. Meditation, very important. And I learned how to manage my stress. And it taught me. And I also watched some relatives decline. And I saw what happened when you didn't take care of your vessel. You know, when you don't take care of your body, the end game isn't pretty. And I didn't want that end game. It's interesting because, of course, there's lots of talk about that, particularly these days, given the pandemic. And yet in the context of entrepreneurship, I think we get very glib about it. Yeah. As if, you know, okay, look, this is an issue you have to be aware of. But of course, the real issue is financial insecurity. Mm -hmm. When in fact, this can be much more devastating. Absolutely. Absolutely. My friend Rex Harris wrote the book, The Healthy Workplace Nudge. And it is an incredible resource into how devastating not managing your mental health is to business. Okay. Now, talking about stress, this is going to be a a slightly different transition. When did WeWork arrive in Austin, Texas? Oh, gosh. You know, I don't know the exact date they arrived in Austin, but I will tell you, Adam Newman came to Austin because of me. Tell me about that. Well, I had um, I had seen Adam speak at a conference in Berlin, and he spoke via Skype. And I was like, wow, this guy is dynamic. And I looked up his company, and I loved the website. And I was in the process of starting a co-working conversation. And I had launched a brand called the Global Coworking Unconference Community, which is GCUC, and we call it Juicy. And I was uh, I needed speakers. And so starting a conference gives you the ability to call up anybody in the world and invite them to come speak. So I called up Adam and I invited him to come speak and he came. Do you remember what their entry strategy into Austin was? Yeah, I do. They were looking for, they wanted downtown space. I was trying to convince them to buy the Seaholm building. It didn't end up working out, but they took space on 6th Street and it was okay. You know, it was space where you had to go up an elevator, which I'm not a big fan of. And yeah, they entered into the Austin market. I'm guessing 2013 or 14. I don't know about Austin, but at a lot of markets, they came in, they picked up choice locations. Of course, they're venture back with early stage mm-hmm. benchmark money and lots of it. And they were offering people um, and organizations a year's free membership. Yeah. So when I opened my third location, which was 20... 20- 17. They had just launched a location not far away at all. It had been open for a little while, but they had just got SoftBank money or the, or the second infusion, I can't remember. And they were offering a free year and paying the brokers 100%. And I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't compete with it. And my space sat relatively empty for a few months. 
And my partner, I had a management deal called me in and I, I got called to the carpet for the sales. The good news is I had a partner, so I was able to stay alive for that time when no one was signing up. But then what happened is people started leaving WeWork despite it being free because they wanted a better experience and they wanted a community. And that's what I had. Say more about this better experience than what WeWork was offering. Well, you know, at the scale WeWork was and at the rate they were growing at that time, I don't think they cracked the code on scaling community. And I don't know if anyone has. It's really hard to do. So when you've got a ton of growth and a ton of turnover and, you know, a bunch of young folks running your front desk, I'm not sure you know the very basics of building a community, which is as easy as, hey, George, welcome. How are you doing today? Instead of just letting people walk by, instead of inviting people to join the community and to be at an event and to be part of something. So I think it was that, you know, we endeavored to get to know you. We endeavored to get to know your company. And as soon as we could think of a way to help your business, we were going to tell you about it or introduce you to somebody. Yeah, my experience, and it might have been limited, but with WeWork here in Boston was that it was, um, you'd walk in and it might as well have been an insurance company with lots of people with headphones on and their heads down. And um, I didn't sense any of that conviviality that you were talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, it's something that you have to be intentional about. It takes time. The thing with community is you have to build it. You can't buy it. So it's interesting. You go back to the notion that you're not sure anybody has cracked the code about scaling community. Maybe it's not scalable. I don't know. I don't know. You know who I think is kind of scaled community is Ted. People know Ted. They have a good feeling about Ted. They know about that experience of Ted. Ted might be a community that's scaled. So Um, Coming on the heels of dealing with this corporate trust fund baby that comes into town with unlimited funds, Austin and the co-working ecosystem survives that. Mm -hmm. And then along comes the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What does the ecosystem in Austin and nationally look like today? And how do you think co-working is going to evolve as we move out of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Austin, so three markets were hit that are going to recover very slowly. And that's San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. I'm not saying I'm betting against New Yorkers. No one would have the audacity to do that. I'm just saying they were hit harder than others and they will recover more slowly. The rest of the country, I think, has got an even playing field. You know, the deal with co-working during the pandemic is if you were in trouble before the pandemic, you did not make it period. You're gone. If you kind of had your act together or had your act together and you had a good landlord and a good relationship, you're still here. And now we are starting to see it come back and come back so strong. This is co-working's moment. What's interesting is, you know, corporations have had to go and reevaluate everything because they were just part of the largest work from home experiment in the world. And now they're coming back with their hybrid and their hub and spoke and everybody's talking about flexible workspace. And what flexible workspace is, is just a new term to describe space as a service. And co-working offers community. Flexible workspace can offer community. I think whereas it's intrinsic in co-working, it's 
a um, option in flexible workspace. And flexible right. workspaces also, you know, first it was executive centers, then it was business suites, and now maybe that's flexible workspace, but it's it's still evolving. You know, we're still coming out of the pandemic, but the good news is. All these folks that learned they can work from home also learned that home isn't always the ideal place to work and that they need something else. And they need something else because the kids are home, the doorbell rings, the dog barks. And, you know, quite frankly, having a space you can carve out in your home for an office is a privilege. And not everybody has that privilege. And not everybody can afford the childcare. And not everybody can afford the great ergonomic furniture. So, you know, I believe that the smart companies will give their employees the option to go to a co-working space or a flexible workspace arrangement because the other thing is, is this, you know, loneliness epidemic, the thing in my mind that solves the loneliness epidemic is community. And where is community a given? At a co-working space. So co-working spaces have a tidal wave of demand coming their way. Yeah. In fact, I, I think you could make the argument that if you listen carefully to people who were working from home before the pandemic, very often they really weren't working from home. They were working near home. Mm-hmm meaning from some local space. Everybody, I think, benefits enormously from leaving your house and going someplace. I'm not talking about a long commute, but going someplace else. Yeah, you know, and, and like and benefiting from that change in psyche, right? And you know, here's the other thing. Your home is your haven. This should be your safe place. This is where your family is. This is where you should be safe and protected. And I don't think it's fair for a company to say, go work from home and not give you options or a stipend or the right furniture or the right resources. I think it's a whole nother can of worms when you say you have to work from home. There's a French philosopher who, who wrote a lot about home and houses and architecture who said at one point, the home is ultimately where we daydream. It's a place of safety. Mm -hmm where we can dream. So I do think actually the whole notion of working from home is a misnomer to begin with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. And I just, it actually infuriates me that companies are now saving millions of dollars on their real estate and not making better options for their employees. I think they will though, don't you? I do think so. I think it'll take time. You know, corporations just yeah. move at a very slow pace. They're very risk adverse. And this scares the hell out of them. It might be for good reason. There's a theory <laughs> out there. I, I don't know whether I subscribe to it or not, but I've heard people say this before that when you let people work from home more than two or three days a week, it's their first step out the door, permanently out the door. Yeah. Suddenly you begin to question things that you never questioned before when you're in a routine, you get up in the morning, you put on the uniform, you get in your car, you commute. So we'll see whether or not that's true. I question that. I think that the onus is on the company to give their employees options that invigorate them, inspire them, that makes them feel more valuable. And that's the thing that I think so many, I think corporations are screwing up in a couple of ways. I think one, they're not talking to their employees enough about this. And two, I think that they're not thinking about how can I build or utilize space in a way that makes my employee feel valued? 
Because you know who doesn't leave you is an employee who feels valued, trusted, and taken care of. And that's, I think, the number one problem for all CEOs pre-pandemic, talent, retention, and attraction. And that's still going to be it after COVID settles down. Yeah, maybe even more intensely. Yeah. We'll be right back. So let's go back to you. You built Link up to three locations mm-hmm. in Austin, and then you sold it. Link. Yeah. Why'd you sell? You know, I was looking around, and I knew that I either needed to go big, like I needed to put Link in every city in America, which would it mean I'm on, you know, flights to St. Louis and Des Moines and blah, 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 and I'm growing that brand. And I looked at the Austin market, and that time in the Austin market, there were 70 co-working brands. 70. This is when? This is 2019. And I 70 different. Huh? And I was like, you know what? There's 70 brands just in Austin, Texas. And then I have this co-working conference. There's only a handful of co-working conferences in the world. And I would argue I'm the best. So why am I competing in this crowded market when I can compete in the small market? In addition to that, I don't want to get on planes to Des Moines and St. Louis. I want to get on planes to Sydney and London. That sounds very cool. Now, but I do want to go back and clarify something because you said you're sitting here with Link. You've got three successful co-working mm-hmm. locations in Austin. It's a great market. And you felt, look, I had to go national. Is that a less of a strategic imperative and more about just your level of personal ambition? Maybe, maybe. But uh, yeah, I, wasn't, I was never going to be <laughs> To me, success was never just Austin, just Texas. And I did. I had absolute intentions of building a national brand. And I could have, but I I chose the conference instead. So tell us about Juicy. So Juicy started, you know, in 2011, a now defunct brand did a half day unconference in Austin around South by and it was called the Coworking Unconference. And it was a half a day. And I didn't even know what an unconference was. I bought a ticket, I showed up, but I also had helped the organizers with finding some sponsors. And I went and I participated and I met other co-working leaders that I'd been following, like Fangirl from around the world. People like John Eves Hewart, who runs Coworking Europe, and Karsten, who runs Desmag. And I was like, this is amazing. And I was sitting in the crowd at the end of the day when there was a panel up on stage of a bunch of guys, not the guys I would have picked. And I thought to myself, I want to pick the people on stage. And the person that picks the people on stage will have some power. And I liked that idea. And I had made it very clear that I was super into this. So when the folks that had put together the conference decided that they weren't going to do it again, they called me up that summer and said, hey, Liz, we're not going to do this again. Do you want to take it over? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to take it over. So I (laughs) rebranded it the Global Coworking Unconference Conference, which was GCUC. And And I was sitting next to my friend, Jeff Jorling, and I turned to him and I said, GCUC. And he said, oh, it's juicy. And I was like, done. And that's how the name started. And since that day, we've done over 32 in-person conferences around the world, including a bunch in China, Australia, London, Canada, Brazil, Taiwan. And we recently changed the name, I think about a year ago, to Global Coworking Unconference Community, because we now offer memberships and discounts and really support the community year round instead of just at 
point in time event. So is this for people who are operating co-working spaces? Mm -hmm. Or people that are looking at getting into it or, you know, the co-curious. So what does a first-time attendee see when they walk into their first Juicy event? Well, one of the things that I think really sets Juicy apart is at my time in corporate America, I went to a bunch of boring events and I was like, Juicy needs to be fun. Juicy needs to be different. Juicy needs to be energy. And, you know, I think what they find right away is that it's a celebration. Juicy is a celebration of our industry. It is a bunch of people coming together that really believe in something and want to support each other. So I think when people come in, the first thing they're going to see is a whole bunch of people hugging each other because we're so excited to see each other. And this year it's going to be more epic hugging than ever. In fact, I've set aside time in the beginning just for hugging. And if this repels <laughs> you, please don't come. So uh, where is where is this hugging going to take place, Liz? <laughs> uh, we, we have not nailed down the exact date or the exact venue, but it will be this fall in Austin, Texas. But By the way, I want to go back to something you said, which was very interesting. And it, it, it's that you didn't say, I was sitting there and I decided I wanted to be on that stage. You said, I want to choose who goes on that stage. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference. Totally. It was more about highlighting different people and people doing exciting things and not the people that everybody expected. Like, choose somebody different. Choose somebody that's not in our industry. Choose somebody that can just ignite a spark in somebody. It doesn't have to be the same people that get all the same press. I'm a big fan of the underdog. I'm going to ask you a question. This, this might not be um, politically appropriate at this woke moment, but <laughs> I, wonder if, is this, I wonder if this is a gender thing. I wonder if you had 50 men and 50 women sitting there in your position, the majority of the men would have said, I want to be on that stage. Mm -hmm. I, want the, I want the spotlight on me. Whereas more of the women might have said, you know, I, I want to be the choreographer. Yeah. I, I, I want to decide what the dance is and who the dancers are. And yeah. And, and I think it's also partially because, you know, I think I'm very excited for the future because I think we've just defaulted to men for so long. And I think men have gotten so many more of the opportunities specifically around money. And I think that I'm seeing this shift that I'm super excited about. About because women lead differently. Women manage differently. Women are caregivers and we're, we can multitask like nobody's business. And I just think that if women were running more things, we'd be in a better world. But you know, I'll, I'll say this as, uh, as not as a journalist, but as the father of three daughters, mm -hmm. you guys are going to run the world. That, that's not the question. Mm -hmm. The question is when will the tipping right, point come? Exactly. And like there's been so many good indicators lately. But I can also tell you as a woman who's gone to try to raise money and who's been playing in various men arenas for a really long time, we have a really long way to go. I want to go back to the world of co-working as it exists today. Mm -hmm. And two things, at least, well, three things I want to talk about. The first is, have you seen what we at the Solo Project call the do-it-yourself co-working phenomenon? And let me explain what I mean by that. We were doing um, what we refer to as the Solo City Report, which is published and available on our site. And we came across people who were ideal candidates to uh, join co-working spaces. And they did, and they were very dissatisfied. And so they went out and they created their own. Mm -hmm. 
And they're smaller spaces, although some of them are big as three to 5,000 square feet. There's one in Washington, D.C. that's run by a husband and wife team, and um, they have an eclectic group of people that come in and pay. But it's it's a mini neighborhood co-working space. There's a comparable one that Pat Mitchell and I visited in Minneapolis that was started by a fashion designer and now features a fashion designer, a fashion influencer, photographer, a designer. These are what we call do-it-yourself co-working spaces, very small, very intimate. Are, are you seeing this phenomenon as well? Yeah. Do you think it has legs? Yeah, we've seen it for a long time. I really like it. I think it's phenomenal. I oftentimes caution against it because what we see so often, George, is it's just somebody got too much real estate and they're like, oh, I'll just put co-working in this corner. And they don't realize that when you put co-working or you sublease part of your space to somebody else, you are then in charge. And that comes with a lot of complexity, you know, like they're going to complain about the temperature and they're going to want the coffee to be hot and they're going to want to change the furniture and they're going to. So what I always tell people is huge advocate of adding co-working into your business, but don't do it without understanding what that means for your business. Because now you are oh, I see. you are managing humans, and that is a big undertaking. The one manifestation of this particular kind of co-working that you're referring to, where an organization, let's say a larger established one, mm-hmm. offers some space to um, a smaller one, at least here in the Northeast, tends to be uh, professional service firms, often consulting firms, that they don't just offer space to, but they actually incubate really interesting nonprofits. Yeah. And they find that kind of it really energizes the office. Absolutely. For the consultants. Yeah, yeah. And you know, one of the other things we're always like, whenever I'm talking to a brand and they're like, I'm going to put my co-working space on the sixth floor. I'm like, oh, you need to get some space in the lobby because people have to see and experience that energy to get it. And I love the neighborhood thing. And I love these smaller curated spaces. I love that they're doing application processes and really making sure that the people are a fit for their environment because you are like probably going to spend more time with them during the week than you are with your family. So you better like them. Yeah, I think there are a lot of obstacles also, frankly, in in a lot of communities to uh, setting up co-working spaces in ideal smaller locations. But I think it's going to explode because so many people need an alternative to home. Is that something that you feel you can support and advocate for at Juicy? You know, that's an interesting question I hadn't really thought about, but sure, why not? I want you to think about what you see in the um, national co-working ecosystem here in the U.S. for just a moment. Who are your all-stars? Ooh, that's easy. I really like Bond Collective. You know, you've got regional players that get it are fantastic. I like Bond. I like Kilm out of Utah. They're kind of getting interesting. I like Common Desk. They're Texas-based, and they actually bought Link Co-working. Where is Bond? Bond is based out of New York. Industrious is killing it. Industrious has really got their act together. They just got a huge investment from CBRE. They'll do really, really well. I think it's interesting to watch. Lots of people aren't watching 
a couple of brands that I think they should be, which are Lifetime Fitness has a brand that I think is super interesting. Soho is, has got a brand that I think is super interesting. And then the other thing is there's only a handful of kind of franchisees and licensees. Office Evolution, VentureX, and Hera Hub are the three I want. And they're all doing and those well. Three, what, what those three have in common is that they have franchise opportunities? Two are franchise, one is licensed. So go back over that list. What are some of the commonalities? In your mind, what makes for an all-star? You know, um, I think it knowing who you are and continually going back to your core focus. That's huge. I think saying no more than yes and knowing how to expand in a smart way. There's so many opportunities right now that I think the thing you should be saying more than yes is no. In terms of expansion, yeah, you mean? definitely. And then lastly, it's people that pay really good attention to design and hospitality. This is so huge, especially in the future as there's going to be so many options. It's the space that you walk into that it smells clean and fresh and you're looking at something beautiful and you've been greeted and you know where you belong and the space actually inspires you and invigorates you, that's the space I'm watching. It's interesting because when you mentioned design, I have to say one of the features that seemed to be really popular was a, a mode of design that struck me as absolutely soulless, mm. cold, mm -hmm. institutional, mm -hmm. kind of pseudo chic, but um, you're describing something very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was actually meeting with the CEO of Bond yesterday. He happened to be here in Austin and he showed me his future design in LA and it was absolutely stunning, beautiful colors, beautiful design. And, you know, I think what people need to think about when they're designing a space is like, what would you love to work in? Where would you love to sit? What would you love to look at? Instead of, well, that desk costs $400 and this one costs $300. I'm taking the $300 desk. So you just answered a question I was just about to ask you, which is given our audience here at The Solo Project, what should an indie creative or professional looking for a co-working space for the first time? What should they look for and what should they be aware well, of? Well, I think the best thing they can do is there's so many different flavors of co-working. Go do your research. Go find your top like 10 online and then go visit as many as you need to until you find the one that fits you. And what happens so often is people go to one co-working space and they're like, I don't like this. It's not me. Co-working didn't work. No, you didn't go to enough co-working spaces. And here's the other thing. If you can't find one, maybe you need to build one. Oh, there you go. Now we're back to do it yourself. Right. <laughs> Now, as if all this isn't enough, in your spare time, yeah. you've gone back to school. Mm -hmm. you know, and you've gone back to school in a really interesting program. I'd like you to share that if you yeah, will. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I always admired folks that went back to school, and I never actually considered it. Never even thought about it. And then actually my friend Rex Miller was telling me that I should join the Association of Professional Futurists. And I'm like, Rex, I am not a professional. And he said, well, if you want to be one, the best program in the world is just down the street from you at the University of Houston. And I was like, what? And he just planted that little seed. And so I applied to get a graduate degree in foresight, not knowing at all what I was getting into or what it really was. <laughs> and I just dove in. Yeah, would you, could you explain that to yeah, the rest well, of us? A great 
to a degree in F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T. Yeah, it's, foresight. yeah, so it's to become a professional futurist. We're not predicting the future. We're forecasting. And what we're doing is it's really teaching us a methodology to understand what the future might look like. And we do that through analysis of publications, through talking to people, through interviewing people. And there's a very succinct process you can go to to go to a company or a client and help them with their strategy for 2035 or for 2050. So foresight really defines thinking about the future on a longer term basis. On a longer term in a systematic way. So we study systems thinking, we study research, we study all sorts of different things. And I think what I'm so happy about is it's been 30 years since I was in school and I had to go relearn studying. I had to teach myself how to read really intense articles about chaos theory and things like that. And it's really waking up my brain. And that's part of what I wanted too, is, you know, as we get older, it's so easy to to not challenge ourselves. There's so many things at our fingertips, especially with these little devices we're carrying around. And I think we have to create opportunities to force our brains to work harder. Okay, so here's my question then. How has this already begun to change how you think about your life, how you think about Juicy? It's so exciting. It's opened a whole nother door. There's a whole nother door out there. Because I started, I did my... um I've I've done lots of the assessments of what what I'm naturally inclined to do. And I'm naturally, my third highest strength in the Clifton assessment is basically being a futurist. I naturally think at a 60,000 foot view. I just do. Everything you I start talking about, I think about it globally immediately. But now I'm thinking about Mars. Now I'm thinking about underwater. Now I'm thinking about what does it mean when we colonize Mars for the future workspace? So what I can now offer people I work with and my Juicy community is this avenue into the future and how we can future-proof our businesses and build better workspaces for the humans in our care. With things returning to normal, GCUC conferences will be live again, starting with an event early this fall, most likely in Austin. Juicy members can access a Slack channel featuring content from past events, as well as tools and discounts on essential products and services. For more information, visit gcuc.co or follow them on social media at GCUC Global. Here Comes Everybody is a production of The Solo Project, LLC. This episode was produced by Patrick Mitchell. I'm George Jandrin. For more information, visit thesoloproject.com and follow us on social media at The Solo Project.